Church is a funny thing, and I just want to position, take a little bit of time here on the front end to go, where have we been all year? Because we're going to kind of get into some passages now where uh, this week it's going to be about what kind of ways should we believe and engage because of what Jesus has done. Next week it's about disciple making and how do we carry on what we have heard about and learned from Jesus. Uh, following that, after we get through the Christmas season, it's going to be about the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to end the last Sunday of the year, new heavens and new earth. And so we have a lot to go through as we kind of get through the, the last few weeks of the year. So where have we been? Well, remember, because this whole series has been about kind of putting the big pieces of Scripture together, uh, we start with creation. Genesis chapter 1, God makes the world and everything in it. He says it's good. He makes man in his image. and says, you know, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He tells them to go, be fruitful and multiply, blesses them and says, go out and uh, fill the earth with essentially my image. Fill the earth with my image, that people might know me, that that might continue. Well, we know it doesn't take very long. We get into Genesis chapter 3, and all of a sudden, the word of God is being questioned by the tempter, by Satan. The word of God is being questioned, and that has been the case ever since, is that we doubt the truthfulness of God's word, God's words, God's promise, God's declaration. Says to Eve, did God really say that? She goes, well, he kind of said this and this. He goes, no, 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 God was just joshing with you. Didn't really say that. So we get into that section. We have the fall where they disobey God. Adam and Eve disobey God, and they are separated from him. In Genesis chapter 3, many would say there's this little seed of a promise uh, that there's going to be a crushing of the serpent. In fact, if you ever follow around on social media around holiday time, you start to see this image of like Eve who's all uh, beaten up and tired, and then there's a picture of Mary, and underneath Mary's foot is a, is a snake. Like, you'll start to see that kind of floating around because it's taking a Genesis 3 idea and the promise of the Messiah that comes, as we read in, like, the book of Luke. And so there's a seed of a promise that we start to track through the rest of the Old Testament into the New Testament. But there's a fall. But in Genesis chapter 12, there's a promise. The Lord says to a guy named Abram, and Abram and his family were not following God. They were pagan worshipers. They were idolaters. But God speaks into Abram's life and says, I need you to go to the land that I'm going to show you. I'm going to make you a great nation. Those who bless you, I'll bless. Those who curse you, I'll curse. But through you, your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, Abram, whose name becomes Abraham, believes God. Believes what God says. God has given a promise. They've kind of waffled on how it's going to happen. They have some moments of faithlessness. But ultimately, there's a belief that God is going to do what God said. And it says it's credited to him as righteousness, right? That, that, that his belief is his righteousness. His faith in what God has promised is that. So he believes God. God gives him a promise. Essentially, he goes, you'll be fine, but your ancestors, your, those who come after you, are going to be in slavery for several hundred years, 400 years. They're going to come out of that. And we see that. We see the book of Genesis end with Abram's, Abraham's descendants in Egypt. And then the book of Exodus begins about a pharaoh who rose up over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. Joseph was the guy who kind of made Israel and, the, and, the, and his family, all those brothers he had who didn't like him and sold him or you know, kind of gave him away. He, he's the guy who was friends with Pharaoh, but after a while, Pharaoh does, this, the new Pharaoh doesn't remember Joseph and starts to put the people of Israel who have multiplied greatly in bondage. But God calls a guy named Moses out. Moses is there. God says, I need you to go before Pharaoh. Let my people go so that they may worship me. And Moses is like, I'm not going to do that. I, I can't speak well. 
So it's Moses and Aaron. They kind of become a tag team as this happens. But Moses leads the people out. Leads the people out of the land. By God's grace, because there are, you can say, well, God let them out of the land. Yes, uh, Moses was the human earthly leader at that time, but there were plagues. Pharaoh's finally like, get out of here. And then God delivers them as the armies are traveling through, delivers them through the sea, establishes them as his people, gives them the law, but they disobey again. And so the whole generation <coughs> out of the land cannot enter in. They wander in the wilderness. That's what we read in the book of Numbers. They're wandering around, ping-ponging around the area before they get into the land that God had promised them. Finally, Moses has his like last speech, the book of Deuteronomy, kind of his speeches to his people before they enter the land. And they go into the land, Joshua leads them, and they have the conquest. But they don't do too well at the conquest. They keep forgetting to go take the land that God has promised them. They make deals, they try to figure it out, they don't wipe out everybody. There's all this kind of confusion over what they're supposed to do, but what's clear is that they do not obey the voice of God. So they live in the land, but they don't live in the land of the way the Lord had wanted them to. And we enter into this period of time where uh, the book of Judges, before there's a king, before there are kings on the throne, and they say everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the, the people are in the land of Israel, but they're just doing what they think is best. As we enter into the end of the era of the Judges, we get the people demanding a king from Samuel. Give us a king, give us a king, and we want to be like everybody else. God had already known there was going to be a king, but the people were trying to jump on it a little too quickly. They wanted a king too quickly. So God says to Samuel, they're not, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Do what they say, but it's a rejection of me. They set up this guy Saul. Saul didn't last too long. He wasn't that good of a king. A little bit of a coward. But God does set up a guy named David. If you're familiar with the scriptures, we hear about David being a man after God's own heart. He's a guy who pursues God. Uh, he doesn't do perfectly. If you read the story of David, certainly imperfect in many ways, uh, but goes to the Lord in repentance. Much of the book of Psalms or Davidic Psalms, a lot of the work that he did. We have this promise, though, that we preached through that was given to David that there's going to be a king forever. There's going to be this king forever. It's called the Davidic covenant. That God says to David, there's going to be someone who comes after you who will always be on the throne. Well, we quickly see, after we have David, we have Solomon. After Solomon, we have a divided kingdom in the north and south. We quickly see that the throne of which God spoke did not exist as you might have anticipated at that time it would go. Like, we're just going to have somebody who's around forever. It was divided, and not only that, the nation was disobedient, and each the northern and southern kingdom were taken into captivity. They were taken into captivity. The northern tribes by Assyria, the southern tribes by Babylon, and now we enter into this time of the Babylonian captivity. And you just see, time and time again, God's promising he's going to do something, but the people are not holding up in a sense they're in, but God has said, it's good, I'm going to make it work. And you kind of, as, as it goes, you're like, how are you going to make this work? You go, oh, no, I'm going to do this. You go, how are you going to make that work? And every time you kind of get along the line, from Adam and Eve to the call of Abram to the uh, beginning of the people in Egypt, then to the Exodus, and their disobedience there, then we have a united kingdom, then we have a divided kingdom, and now we have essentially a departed kingdom where people have been taken out of the land into slavery by other kingdoms. And you go, what's the Lord going to do here? So we enter into this exilic period. And in that period, we begin to see God promising that he's going to do something. He's going to do something for his people that no one's seen before. He's going to change their hearts. He's going to put 
the law on their hearts. He's going to take their hearts of stone. He's going to give them a heart of flesh. He is going to do a transformative work in his people. Which, if you're one of those people hearing that promise, you're like Ezekiel, you're going to have a lot of hope in something. God begins to send people back to the land. We read that after their captivity, he starts sending people back into the land. Not everybody, not all at once, because it's a long time to be exiled. You start to kind of establish roots and live in a different place. And so slowly, people start to trickle into the land. They rebuild the temple that was destroyed, but they don't do it in the way that it used to look. And you kind of have the people going, this can't be it. This can't be everything. God has given us all of these promises. They have them as far back as you can go. God has given us everything. This can't be it all. And God is still saying it's not everything. As we ended our portion in the Old Testament, we got to Malachi. And Malachi is like, I'm going to send someone before you. Before my coming, I'm going to send a prophet before you. And he's going to declare it, right? So we end the book of Malachi in this anticipation of what's going to come. And we enter into a period chronologically, it was called 400 years of silence, where a lot of development happens, but nothing in regard to the inspiration of Scripture. Kind of Malachi ends, and then we just kind of go into what happens next. 400 years is a long time. This would be waiting, isn't it? I don't think anybody here has waited that long for anything. Just guessing. <clears throat> you can take it to the bank. Enters into this 400 years, and then, and then all of a sudden, there's activity again. People are proclaiming and preparing, and there's this guy named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist doesn't just show up on the, on the scene, but there's actually interactions even before that in regard to his birth, right? So we read in Luke uh, that people are, uh, that God's going to move, and this guy's going to proclaim, right? Make way the past, make it straight for the Lord. So there's John the Baptist, and there's, then the proclamation about Jesus, the Messiah, being born. And now we have things that are starting to connect, don't they? There's been this promise that God's going to do something, and now God's moving again. He hadn't done it like this in hundreds of years, but now we're starting to hear about what he's going to do, and there's anticipation again for the advent, the arrival of a king. And he's born. That's often what we enter into during this season. But he's born, and he grows up, and people are like, is this really the guy? Like, we had all these promises of what's going to come, what's going to be, how this world is going to change. He's going to bring a sword. He's going to kill everybody that doesn't like him. We're going to get this kingdom established that had been promised. Don't forget the Davidic covenant. There's going to be someone on the throne forever, so we are ready to take that thing by force if we must. And Jesus is on the scene, and he's just being nice to people. He's healing them. He's taking care of Gentiles. He's raising them from the dead. He's crying with them. He's feeding 5,000. Even the people who reject him, he's still taking care of them. So you have this guy who's acting in a way that no one should act, especially not a king. Right? Kings declare and tell you what to do, but they don't really have to do things themselves because they have the authority. This guy's down there serving, supporting, caring, healing, loving, teaching, ministering through all of his days. And the religious leadership of the time really doesn't like it. They really don't like what this guy Jesus is doing. And so, they prepare to kill him. End his life. So they go, well, surely if we can end his life, we can end this movement. It's not an unwise thought. I mean, in, in, humanly speaking, if you want to end a movement, maybe end its leader. 
So they go, let's get rid of the guy. Well, that doesn't work too well, does it? They crucify Jesus. He was betrayed by one of his own disciples who were traveling and ministering with him for three years. Betrayed by Judas. They crucified Jesus. Three days later, the tomb is empty. It's what we recognize on Easter, right? That Jesus resurrected. Now you go, oh, wait a second. Wait a second. This isn't supposed to happen. But then you start reading like specific psalms. And you start reading about what God's going to do. And there are mentions that this king isn't going to see decay. People are going, wait, this is, this is different. He is different. So Jesus is in there with his disciples, and he spends a certain amount of time on the earth, 40 days. He's teaching, he's ministering, he's again proclaiming and helping them understand who he is and what he's done. And then, I don't know what it looked like, but he ascended. So he ascends back into heaven. But before he does that, he tells his disciples, those who are following him, go and make disciples of all nations. The proclaiming work of the gospel. Go and tell others about this, that I am the fulfillment, that everything is found in me, that through me they can be forgiven. Well, at this time, the understanding was still very nation-centric. Even though it said all nations, a lot of the work as we read the book of Acts is still hovering around Jerusalem, which would make sense because that was kind of the hub but it's hovering around Jerusalem. Not a lot of Gentiles are there yet. Gentiles are non-Jews. But as you read the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts, you start to see kind of the uh, outward expansion of the message of Jesus. It's going now from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. We follow along with this guy named Paul, and Paul is there, and the Jews are spread out, and the Gentiles are there, and he's going out, and he's proclaiming. We have this church in Antioch, which is sending them out because it's full of, like, Greek-speaking and Jews, it has all these people there. They don't know what to call them at the church of Antioch, so they just call them Christians. It's the first time they're called Christians because I would guess it has to do with the fact they don't know what to call them. You can't call them the Jewish church. You can't call them the Gentile church. You have to find a new name for all these things because you're not really sure what's going on here. You know, let's call them Christians, Christ followers, whatever. That's who they are. Because now we don't have like the Christians who meet in the temple, and the Christians who are Jewish there, and then these Gentiles who are over here. We have a new category of person. Well, as you follow out a lot of the New Testament, they're dealing with this idea, aren't they? What's it mean to be Jew and Gentile together? In fact, the book of Ephesians covers that in detail. But Ephesians, Ephesus, is not in Israel. Ephesus is out. Right? The letter to the Romans is farther out. And so we get into the New Testament era, and the churches are being planted, and we're starting to see now, how do you live for the Lord when your worship isn't centralized in a city, Jerusalem? Your priesthood is now dispersed amongst all those who believe, the priesthood of believers. You now have the Holy Spirit in you. Jew and Gentile have access you can even read Paul about all the promises that the Jews have, but now Gentiles are grafted into those promises. Now we have this kind of new world, all because of what Jesus has done. And as we continue it out, we're going to continue to read about uh, how to live together in the faith because of what Jesus has done, the truth of the person and work and freedom that we have in Jesus. And as we finish out our reading plan toward the end of the year, what are we going to get to? But the things God promised way back in the prophets, that there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. There'll be a new Jerusalem. God will be with his people like they have not been before. 
Revelation chapter 21. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity. He will be their God. They will be his people and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief and crying and shame will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And between that moment and what we saw in Jesus is where we are. Seeking to live faithfully with him while we anticipate his second advent, his second coming into this world. And we get a passage like Hebrews. Hebrews being an incredibly Jewish book. Meaning written to Jews who are scattered abroad, trying to understand their faith. And, and you have to think, the risk of leaving Judaism to become a Jewish follower of Jesus, because you don't really lose your Jewishness when you come to faith. It's not gone. It's still there, but now you're a fulfilled in Jesus Jew, right? Like, like it's not like, ah, I'm done with that. No, I'm still a Jewish person. This is my heritage, but he is now my Messiah. Because Paul even says those things. Hey, I, you know, I was a Jew of Jew. I was great. Now, what Matt preached last week, I considered all a loss. But he's still in the book of Romans is calling him his people. Oh, how I wish that I could be cut off from Jesus so that my people could believe. And he wants to get back. We preached that a couple of weeks ago. He wants to get back to Jerusalem to celebrate with them the Passover. He wants to get back because those are his people. Hebrews is written to Jews, and many of them struggling with this idea of, I'm following Jesus, but I'm losing everything. I'm losing everything. Lose my family, lose my comfort, lose my life. Don't want to do that. And that was a problem many people were facing in the original centuries that the gospel was going out, and still many across the globe face. When I align myself with Jesus, everything changes. It's true regardless of where you are, but when I align myself with Jesus, everything changes. And the book of Hebrews is essentially a treatise explaining time and time again to these Jewish followers of Jesus how important it is to remain faithful to him, to continue on in him, to believe in him. And there's, it argues, let me explain why. You might want to go back to this you might think this is better. You might think this system is better. This way of believing is better. So there's this kind of this continual surgical removal of those ideas and an ex explanation of how Jesus is better. There's new access. There's new freedom. There's new life. He is supreme. He is eternal. And you'll find verses like, well, you know, there used to have to be sacrifices once a year and they never fully forgave. But now, Jesus has come in sacrificed once and for all. He's over the house of God. And so that's our passage for today. It's really two chunks. What did God do in Christ? And then three commands or exhortations. You can call it the hortatory section if you want, if you like those words. But the word, that truth itself in verses 19, 20, and 21. And then three exhortations, which are essentially the phrases that begin with, let us. So it's because, because we have this, and because we have that, let us live like this, and let us live like this, and let us live like this. That's what our passage is for today. Uh, one pastor calls it the great lettuce patch, um, which is always a good way to remember it, though I would only say it in jest. So let's look at the first three verses. 
and this is what we'll see. God made a way through Jesus. A way to know him. A way to have life with him. Through Jesus. Therefore, just finishing out about the life that we have in him and the forgiveness of sin that we have in Jesus. Therefore, since we, number one, have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. That's the first idea. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, now in the Jewish mind, right, the holy places would be considered in the temple. The holy of holies, the place that you only go once a year. And what he's saying now is, therefore, because of the work of Jesus, we have confidence, sure, assuredness, that we can enter in to these places. And he says, like, not once, for, you know, once a year, but forever and always. We can always be with God. Why? By a new and living, that means it's ongoing way, that he, being Jesus, opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. That Jesus provides the way for us to enter into an ongoing relationship with God the Father. So his first reason, the first thing is we have confidence to enter in. Confidence to enter in. And so I just want to take a moment and encourage those of you who feel as if God is distant. This passage says he's not. He is not distant. He is not gone. He is not unconcerned. In fact, God the Father sends God the Son into the world so that we can have a right relationship. Therefore, since Jesus has made a way for us to enter into the places that even the, only the priests could go, and then once a year, we can get near to God. We have it forever. That's reason number one. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter. No fear to come from God. And the second reason. And since number two, we have a great priest over the house of God. A great priest. One who ministers eternally. One who ministers perfectly. One who ministers ongoingly. One who offered the perfect sacrifice. That would be Jesus. So since we have confidence to enter into God's presence because of what Jesus has done, and because the priest that we have over the house of God is eternal, Two motivating reasons for why the exhortations follow. Because we have a way to know God through Jesus. Then there are three encouragements, commands that the author of the Hebrews gives to us or to his audience. The first is this. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can draw near for several reasons, this passage says. 
all of them being summed up in Jesus, but it's explained in different ways. First, because of Jesus' work. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, and then how does that look? Well, our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That's, in a sense, our salvation. We have new hearts. Interesting language, because we know that the Old Testament speaks about getting new hearts. You know, that's a promise that God gives His people. So our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, one that doesn't pursue or know God, and our bodies washed with pure water. Many and probably a lot would think that this is a reference to baptism, but I think, I think that's a little too Gentile to read for a book of Hebrews. I think that's a little too Gentile of us to kind of go, oh, clearly it's baptism. That's how we might read it. But I don't think a Jewish reader reads it as baptism. I think it reads it in like the promise of the new covenant and the coming and the cleansing that comes from God. And the fact that in the Hebrew mind, there's all of this idea of washing and cleansing. And so he's essentially going, the work of Jesus brings you in and cleanses you entirely from your sin. Otherwise, otherwise, then your baptism would be a necessary part of you being able to enter into your relationship with God. And we know it's not. We know a full relationship with God is not dependent upon a work. It's dependent upon the work of Jesus, not a work of us. And so I think what he's saying is you can draw near to God because of what Jesus has done. You have a sure salvation. And your life has been cleansed. Your hearts have been cleansed because of him. So what can we do? Well, think of the thing, and I'm not really sure what that thing is for you. Maybe it's your family reunion. Maybe it isn't. Depends on how Thanksgiving went, I guess. But what is the moment of your year that you look forward to? Because things happen differently. You just have joy about it. For many, it could be holidays and family coming in town, and you get to engage with people you don't get to engage and have conversations you don't usually have and do things you don't usually do and stay up all night and have too much wassail or whatever it is, and you just go, yeah, this is great! But those moments are occasional, aren't they? You get them for a weekend. You get them for three days. You get them for whatever. And then they go. And then you spend the rest of your days waiting for the next one. But not so with our relationship with God. Imagine an Israelite. The Day of Atonement comes. and They go through their rituals. They go through their sacrifice. And there's this moment where the sins of the nation have kind of wandered off in one way, and the, the forgiveness is demonstrated in another way through this sacrifice, or kind of two, the, my sin's leaving me, and my, the, uh, the current way is being forgiven, so we're forgiven, and there's this kind of imagery of the separation, and then like 20 minutes later, you sin. Well, now you have to wait for next year to have that same kind of work. And Hebrews is telling you, you don't need that. You don't need that. You can draw near to God always. The earthly moment that you look forward to year after year, you have every second of every day with God. And yet so often we don't take advantage of what is at our disposal. Regular, ongoing, joyful access to the creator of the universe. Where we look at 
uh, our reading plan of like, well, I just want to want to read, you know, but I just, I'm not in the mood right now. I'm like, you get to know God. God gets to know, gets to know you, right? The author of your author, uh, in Galatians, Paul's right, like, rather than now that you know God, or rather are known by God, he uses this little turn of phrase, which I just love. Oh, it's not really that you know God, because anyone can claim that, it's that God knows you. And people through Jesus have, they're known by God. They have full and free access, and yet they do not live in that. Or more like the older son who's just bitter. They don't feel like dad loves him enough. And dad's like, everything I've ever had is yours. Why are you so bugged by this? You've had ongoing full access to me. But you don't draw near. You don't live closely. You don't engage with your heart. You don't pray. You don't seek him. Right? So listen to what's going on. The author is saying, since we have all of these things provided by Jesus, might we seek to pursue him that we could know him more fully? That we could love him more deeply? That we could engage others with that truth? Might we draw near? For you parents in the room, how delightful is it when your children seek you out? Right? It doesn't change the relationship. It doesn't make you any less of a parent or any less of a son or daughter. But how much more delightful is it for the relationship when you actually live in the status that you have? And you engage in the ways that God has provided for you to engage. When you read the scriptures that he gave to us as a gift that we might know him and understand him better there for us. It's provided for us by God. That's the first. Draw near to God. The second is this. Hold on to your confession. Let us draw near. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So grip what is true about what you have confessed about Jesus. This is an incredibly important idea for the author of Hebrews to the audience of the Hebrews because they keep wondering if they should leave Jesus. Maybe life is better back where it was. And he's like, no, it isn't. I promise it's not. He can't go like two chapters without being like, please don't do that. Bad decision. Whatever you're thinking, it will not satisfy. So of course it makes sense. Well, because it's been provided for you, hold fast to it. And what is that confession? What is that confession? Simply, it could be as simple as this, especially for a child's mind and heart. Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's sometimes funny because when I talk to parents who are trying to understand, like, does my kid know the Lord? And they, I'm like, they don't need to be unpacking some kind of systematic theology for you to know the Lord. You can't unpack that. So, right, but we have this fear of like, well, is, it, is, is their understanding deep enough? I'm like, that's not how it works. Right? That's not how it works. The knowledge and the faith, knowledge of what? Faith in that, 
required for our salvation isn't this incredibly extensive 500-page treatise. The knowledge necessary for our salvation is actually a person. It's a person. It's not words on a page. It's the work of Jesus. So let us hold fast to that confession which is central in what Jesus has done for us. Why? Because he who has promised God toward us, he whose promise is faithful. I was talking with my kids just this week. Because, you know, we live in houses with kids and yourself. You sometimes deal with dishonesty. Often from me, but sometimes from them. So you deal with dishonesty. And I said, here's the deal, guys. We had a little powwow. Our family doesn't work right if we can't trust each other. If I'm worried that you're going to do the things you said you were going to do, or you're worried that I'm going to do the things I said I was going to do, or I'm worried that when you say you did something, you didn't do it, if that's what's going to kind of build into our family, then we're in trouble. Because now we're always second-guessing one another. What's happening here is the author's going, you don't have to second-guess God. He who promises faithful. It's not an earthly promise you've gotten. It's an eternal, enduring promise given by a holy and perfect God. So hold on to it. It's more precious than gold. You can take it to the bank now, and you can take it to the bank in a million years, and it'll still be true. When every other promise and every other thing we hope in and every other thing spoken to us has passed away or disappointed us, what God has said to us about who we are and how we have access to Him does not change. So let us hold fast. In moments where we're wavering, we must hold fast. How do you do that? Lucky for us, there's a third exhortation. Essentially says this, gather with your church. That's what it says. Gather with your church. So let us, verse 24, consider, think about how to stir up one another to love and good works. And then contrastively, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we have this first. Let us draw near and live in the relationship that we have with God. Let us hold fast to our confession because God is faithful. And, and what kind of holds all that together? It's the gathering, being with other brothers and sisters, and spurring them on in the faith because we all need it, don't we? You ever gotten on a spiritual island? I don't know why in our kind of Western mind we think like only being alone with me and my Bible is the best decision because it's not. It's not the best decision. You come up with bad ideas with just you and your Bible. Which sounds, I know, you know, I know it may not sound the coolest, but like theology and understanding the scriptures exists for the community, for us. The letters, other than the pastoral epistles, are written for churches to work through, to live out. And so, yes, your relationship with God is personal because salvation comes through faith. But your faith in the Lord is not 
exclusive to you. It's shared with the community. What I mean by that is this, is that when we do not gather, and I don't just mean on Sundays, but I definitely do also mean on Sundays. When we do not make it a regular habit of being together, it makes perfect sense while the grip on our confession, so to speak, starts to loosen. What have we understood about human hearts from what we have read all year? They do not make good choices when left by themselves. Even when you surround yourself with kind of the smartest people in the world, you still make terrible choices. So what happens when you start to check out of life with other people in the faith? All of a sudden, you're like, why did I ever do that anyways? I don't really need that. I can live my life just fine. Not like that. Bad idea. The whole book of Hebrews is going, bad idea. Why? Let us consider, pay attention to, how to encourage one another to keep after it. Look how closely that encouragement is linked to the work of Jesus. So be that here on a Sunday or in your community group where you gather or an environment, if you are not regularly around other believers centered on the enduring and true word of God, it would make sense why faith doesn't make sense to you. Because God has built our faith to be together. He has built us to need each other. We're a family. We get a weekly family reunion. If you're in a group, you get it bi-weekly with a smaller group of people. You get, you get to do that too. You gather to encourage. Why? I pray over the members of our church, not like over you, over you, but you know, I'm praying through the list. We as elders are praying through those things. We're discussing basically every week what's going on in the life of the church. The amount of hurt, brokenness, struggle, conflict, doubt, worry, joy, put it all in there. In this room is significant. Take any one of the stories that I hear week in and week out and isolate that person or those people. And the result is, is scary and dangerous. And it's funny because in those moments where we want to isolate, they're likely the moments where we need to push in together the most. Because we need to hear somebody say, don't give up. Don't stop running. Don't stop listening. The Lord is there. So one, meeting together, being together, is an important aspect of the Christian life. We all often think about spiritual disciplines as exclusively personal. But gathering with other believers is actually a spiritual discipline. And that it is something that forms us more into the image of Jesus so we can reflect him better. It is part of our exercise as believers. And look at this little, little line, which I just think is incredibly ironic. It ends like this. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, we're several centuries removed from that statement. 
and thus that much closer to the return of the Lord. And yet, often, because of ease, comfort, whatever it might be, that much less committed to engaging together. And you have to think about it like this. And we're going to talk about, uh, I believe, in 1 John on the 22nd. We'll be in 1 John on December 22nd. The world is alluring. John is no fool in business. All kinds of pleasures within the world. And as our comfort level increases and our life stage increases and we feel like we're being super upwardly mobile because we're good Americans, the comfort that we feel to leave, escape, disengage, increases. And then a year, two, three, five, 10, 20, 25, 35, 45 go by and we're like, what happened? I used to dot, dot, dot. Just as Jesus has provided a way, those first three verses again, Jesus has made the way, it doesn't remove responsibility from the believer. Jesus has provided the context and the access into which all of these things happen. But there still are three let us's, aren't there? Which to me communicates that you could not do these things, but you will not be better for them. You will not walk more closely to God without them, with God without them. We need them. We need them. So that is my prayer for us, that we draw near, that we hold fast, and that we gather all the more as we see the day drawing near.